Do you know how to do it? Just start saying it, right? Yeah, but you have to start. You have to start quiet. You have to start. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff. And then you gradually get a little bit louder. Okay. Okay. You lead it, and I'll follow you. I have to close your eyes. Eyes are closed. Ready? Mm-hmm. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. 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 Be the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We're back, and so are you, once again. This is Hit Factory. You are also here. It's uh, it's officially October, and we're going to be watching some spooky movies. And we started off with a, with a real banger. Don't you feel like all of the movies we watch are kind of spooky? Everything is a little bit. <laughs> They are sometimes more spooky in their implications than they are in actual practice. Right. When you just like have a moment of clarity watching a movie from the 90s and you're like, oh, the police state will kill me. (laughs) Inevitably. (laughs) Or or the government watches everything I do. Yep. (laughs) That's spooky. Right. All fun stuff. Yep. Super, super spooky. Um, That shit is spooky. (laughs) But we have a really good one to start spooky season. It is... None other than The Craft. The Craft. From 1996. This is uh, a big deal. This marks our first film from 96 so far on the show. That is a big deal. Uh Uh-huh. Banner year. Banner year. Ten-year-old me was living my best life. Yeah, and there were some good movies coming out, too. There were. The Craft is one that might have one of the most enduring legacies of all, at least amongst... Women of our generation. Millennial ladies. Millennial ladies, for (laughs) sure. There's a lot of of internet ink about this movie. I believe it. And its legacy. And uh, even 25 years almost on, it remains, I don't know, iconic, I guess is the word. If I had a nickel for every time I have either purposefully or accidentally come across... A publication, whether it was a Jezebel article or um, a piece from Vogue about the craft Mm -hmm. in some manner or form, (laughs) I wouldn't need to be doing any work, really. You could just read craft pieces. I'd be living on piles of nickels. Um, Yeah, it, it does run the gamut from, I think, more prestige, critical and cultural avenues in our society, like... I. Definitely saw this movie written about in Vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vulture gets their hands on it too. BuzzFeed, I saw. Even like Refinery29. Oh, yeah. Has a very recent piece from like 2018. Totally. About this. And interestingly enough, it was written, I think, in the wake of the swearing in of Brett Kavanaugh. And so the writer, and most, I feel like, female writers who talk about this movie talk about it in a certain aspect about how the film portrays and empowers a certain type of femininity Mm -hmm. that runs counter to the status quo and the patriarchy that they find solidarity in. Yeah, that's what a lot of the 
ink to use your word that I've interacted with in the you know latter parts of my life where I had not a 10 year old's understanding of this movie were focused on the the types of femininity posited and performed and also celebrated in the movie but I've also seen critiques on both sides mm-hmm. I've seen critiques and we can get into this later that you know really laud the kind of anti-patriarchy, anti-establishment, feminine wares of a lot of the protagonists and each of the sort of spots that they hold, the roles that they hold in what that type of femininity looks like. And then I've seen counter to that, the ways in which this movie objectifies and also doesn't really lend a lot of credence to some very real and what's the word I'm looking for? Uh... To ancestral femininity and the the culture of femininity that has existed throughout time and how that's played a very crucial part in society mm-hmm. and that women have often held the place of healers and prophets and these sort of like divine connections for a reason and that this movie runs counter to that in a lot of ways. Sure. But I can see all sides of argument, any manner of arguments about about this movie being somewhat valid. I definitely want to get into that and talk a little bit about the readings that we extracted from the movie itself, because I think that the text, you're right, lends itself to a certain reading of sort of like a um, third wave feminism, Mm -hmm. but also has a lot of elements in its narrative that actually kind of contradict some of that feminist message and, and narrative that a lot of women of our generation have extracted from it. Yep. I think most notably, or rather I would say, one of the biggest reasons for that is that you're dealing with a film about uh, teenage women written by two men. Yep. And it is interesting the way that the movie plays out as more of a patriarchal sort of uh, morality tale than an actual embracing and sort of flag-waving piece about a certain level of counter-ideology and sort of like uh, um, patriarchy-upending feminism. You can feel the weight of the male lenses that you are wearing as you watch this movie. It's It handles its female characters rather clunkily, to put it, right. to put it nicely. Also a testament, I think, to the enduring legacy of the movie that so many women have found ways to idolize the characters and mm-hmm. the way that they bring a certain level of pathos and sympathy to their characters in spite of the sort of clunky handling of their characters and and the way that Andrew Fleming, the director, kind of misses, misses the mark a little bit. Because there is something very real and true and powerful threaded through the movie, despite a male perspective that may be mishandling certain aspects of it. And I also think that that enduring legacy that you're speaking to has a lot to do with women of a certain age who were watching the movie at a certain time in their life, pre-pubescent or teenage, like myself, right? Mm -hmm. And that that movie is imprinted on their idea of what it meant to be a teenage girl in a certain way. In a lot of the same ways that, you know, movies like The Babysitter's Club and whatever the fuck else, like, did that, right? Right. Um, And here we are now, you know, some 20 plus years later, and there is a reverence for this movie because of that, 
But also I think that speaks to some of the performances within the movie that despite some, you know, kind of flat and disjointed dialogue still really stand out. We should definitely spend time talking about Faruja. Faruja Balk, who she is... She is amazing. She is this movie. She is this movie. Um, I have always been a big Faruja Balk fan, and I think that you and I have even connected in the past about how much we love her and just how against the grain she has always been and has always kind of been this just sort of Hollywood badass who is just really singular and gorgeous and punk rock and... And just like a weirdo and fully owning it. Yeah, she is amazing. And this movie, much like we talk about The Firm or other types of movies being origin stories for their stars, this movie feels a lot like an origin story for Faroujah Balk. Or at least something that finally solidifies her particular aesthetic image and sort of mythos. I agree with the latter. I think her origin story starts with the worst witch or even of return- 1986 right. fame. Or even uh, <laughs> Return to Oz. Or even Return to right. Oz. She has always had a penchant, even in her youth, for kind of offbeat, creepy movies. Yep. Like she's always had sort of a thirst for it. And, and this movie, I think is finally the one where it sort of comes into full manifestation. And from this point on, there is there is only like pre-craft and post-craft Faroujah. I would agree with you. Yeah. Well, I think that before we get too deep into all of that, we should hit some numbers and uh, do a little rundown of the film and then talk the plot where Give me some more of this will come. witchy-ass numbers. Witchy. It's the witching hour. <laughs> And here are some numbers. You know, there's not a ton to talk about and not a, a bunch of accolades behind this film. So, That's all right. So the director, as I mentioned already, is a, a gentleman named Andrew Fleming, who was relatively young when he put this out. I think he was uh, in his like early to mid 30s. What a guy. Yeah. Uh, but he also co-wrote the film with another man named Peter Filardi, who does not have a Wikipedia entry or an IMDb page really of, of much note. Uh, the only other thing that Andrew Fleming might be remembered for his most notable work and probably his his most well-received was a 1999 film called Dick that you might remember. It stars a whole slew of SNL cast members um, and is a retelling of the Watergate scandal. Yes, I do remember <laughs> yes. that movie. And so it stars a very young Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst in like their sort of like cheerleader blonde bimbo aesthetic who eventually become deep throat and reveal all of the information necessary to bring down Nixon to Bob Woodward, who is played in the movie by Will Ferrell. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. And Dan Hedaya plays Richard Nixon, who's like perfectly cast as well. I think is- when I think of a movied version of Richard Nixon, I'm probably thinking of Dan Hedaya's probably. portrayal of him. Yeah. I don't think I've thought about that movie since the trailer for it. Yeah, I think <laughs> came out. The only interaction and experience with it I've had to date is as a trailer that ran before a feature on a VHS tape. Mm-hmm. That is that is my ex- That sounds that, right. That is a, the uh extent of my knowledge with Dick. Definitely but that's right. kind of the apex of Andrew Fleming's career. He didn't really do much after that um and hasn't since. I mean, he's got the craft. There you go. One of the only other people working 
behind the camera of note is a, a cinematographer, another Polish friend, like our, our friend Andrzej Barkowiak. I was going to say, is it yeah. Barkowiak? No, it's his name is... Because that would be weird. <laughs> his name is Alexander Grzynski. So ASC gets, I guess, all these lovely Polish photographers and puts them behind a camera in Hollywood. But uh, he worked on this film as well as Dick with Andrew Fleming. He also did Tremors from 1990 with Kevin Bacon. A movie you love. Love love me some Tremors. We'll definitely do it on the show <laughs> at some point. Um, he's also behind the camera for Macaulay Culkin's The Page Master, if you okay. remember that one. I with do remember the that one. Little animated books. Um, and then he's done a, a handful of Medea movies for Tyler Perry as okay. well. Okay. Gotta make a living. Right. And that's Alexander Grzynski. That's really it in terms of like big hitters here besides the cast of this movie. Who is, it's a a murderer's row of like famous 90s stars. It totally is. So you've got, like we already mentioned, Faroujah Balk in the role of Nancy. You've got Robin Tunney as Sarah, sort of our entry point into this world of witchcraft and Mm -hmm. the newcomer to the group. Nev Campbell, who would star the next year in Scream alongside another co-star of this film, Skeet Ulrich. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Rachel True, who plays Rochelle, the fourth member. Um, And the only, as far as I can tell, black uh, actor in the entire film. Definitely. Yeah. But... uh, And then you've got What's-Her-Face, who's married to Ben Stiller. Right. Uh, Her name is Christine Taylor. From Hey Dude. That's when I first met her. She's also in a lot of Ben Stiller's movies. She's in Zoolander as well. Marsha. Marsha in the Brady Bunch movies. Brady Bunch reboot. Right. And... And uh, Brecken Meyer. Brecken Meyer. Right. That's right. As one of the absolutely awful teenage boys and friends of Skeet. He's so terrible. And he's like a similar but much more terrible character than he plays famously in Clueless. In this movie, he's also like kind of a loner, kind of a like bro, Mm -hmm. but not nearly as sweet. He is playing a major douchebag in this one. He is. He is much sweeter and clueless. And then even later in the decade, he would be in Can't Hardly Wait. Mm-hmm. I love him Ethan in that Embry movie. And Jennifer Love Hewitt. And then um, at the beginning of, of the aughts, he's the lead in Road Trip, which everyone remembers more as a Tom Green movie, but yep. but he is the main character in Road Trip. I really like Breckenmeyer. Me too. And then he, uh, he got together with another famous 90s star, Mark Paul Gossler for the I think it's a I think it's a TNT series Franklin and Bash where they're oh. it's like a legal drama with the two of them. I didn't know he was on that. Yeah, he is either Franklin or Bash. I don't remember which <laughs> he's, one. He's one of them. But it's it's him and Mark Paul Gossler okay. just uh, going toe to toe, reminiscing him and Zach. Him and Zach Morris. I love it. Um, but that's the cast, and that's that's really. I think the big selling point of this movie is just like, like we said, like just sort of a variable who's who of big 90s stars. Mm-hmm. And from there, the, the movie just kind of goes. It does indeed go. <laughs> Hit me with some plot. Let's talk about the plot some a little bit. Some witchy ass plot. So the plot is not the most straightforward. You know, in a good story and in a good screenplay and a good movie, every scene in the movie is necessitated by its previous scene. Mm-hmm. Right? Like... Uh, famously, you know, like a lot of famous screenwriters and, and specifically uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone from South Park talk about this, right? When they write a story, instead of saying this happens and then this happens, you say this happens, therefore, therefore. this happens. Mm-hmm. And this movie I realized for a considerable portion of its running length, if not the entirety of its like two hours, doesn't do that. It is literally this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. No and then. And then. 
No ending. No ending. No ending. No ending. I can't think of two congruous scenes that align and string together with a therefore. The and, only... and not in a cool, like, Tarantino way either. Right. <laughs> like... No, and it's like the only sort of cause and effect uh, moments we have in this movie are really the things that happen because they cast spells. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that we're already anticipating, right? Yep. It, it, it never feels like the next moment is causally tied to the thing that happens before. I think that's why this movie gets away with a lot of disjointedness mm -hmm. is because like I'm just here for the magic. Yes, hello. I am looking for the magic. Don't be shame. And the magic is pretty cool and they do some interesting world building with the magic of the movie. And I think that's kind of why you maybe gloss over that things feel a little bit wacky because you're just excited to see what the next spell is or, you know, what weird thing they're going to pull on like one of their enemies and how that comes to be. That was the stuff that I was really attracted to and entertained by when I was younger and is still, I think, the reason I really like this movie. Absolutely. It is hands down the most entertaining part of the film is when there is just uh, the female camaraderie around practicing of witchcraft mm -hmm. and when the girls get together and just do cool shit and like invoke spirits and, and that is all like totally. the most fun. Fire, water, fire, air, It is better that you should rush upon this blade and enter the circle with fear in your heart. How do you enter? With perfect love and perfect trust. It is better that you should rush upon this blade than enter this circle with fear in your heart. How do you enter? With perfect love and perfect trust. It is better that you should rush upon this blade than enter this circle with fear. The film starts with our main character, Sarah Bailey, played by Robin Tunney. She has just moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco with her father and her stepmother. It's revealed that... Sarah's mother died when she was giving birth to her. And that maybe part of the reason why the family relocated is Sarah's suicidal tendencies. She has cuts on her wrists. Yep. Down the street, not across. She even cut them right. Yes. And they make sure to point out. Nev, Nev Campbell's character applauds her on her, her thoroughness. She begins uh, a Catholic school. And she is immediately noticed by a group of girls who are a coven of witches. There's Bonnie, played by Nev Campbell. There is Rochelle, played by Rachel True. Mm -hmm. And there's Nancy, who is our favorite Faruja Balk. Bonnie notices one day during class that Sarah has the power to levitate a pencil and goes and tells the other girls that she believes that Sarah might be their necessary fourth to complete their coven and make them more powerful. North, south, east, west. At the same time, Skeet Ulrich shows up. He does. As Chris, <laughs> one of the stars of the football team and just an all-around perfect encapsulation of 90s douchebaggery. Yep. 90s douchebaggery and like billowy, ill-fitting clothing on a skeletal meth frame. That is exactly what it is. His <laughs> clothes are so big. They're so big. And he's almost unrecognizable from his character in Scream. Totally. A year later. 
where like in that he has a little bit more of that kind of like Johnny Depp like darkness and mysterious to him. His yeah, clothes he, fit a little he better. He feels like he should have a, a cigarette pack like rolled up into his white t-shirt right. sleeve in that in that uh, movie. Do I recall correctly that he even has like a little bit of like a pencil mustache in that or am I just like making You are that up? incorrectly remembering that. He has long hair though. But he might as well have a pencil mustache. <laughs> okay. He's just smoking a swisher and like has totally a bunch is. of like rings on his hand. <laughs> Skeet is the opposite in this movie, though. Indeed he is. That doesn't deter Sarah from wanting to bone him. She goes on a date, and it's going well. But at the last minute, she decides, I'm not going to go home with you, Chris. We're not going to take this all the way around the bases. That doesn't stop Chris from lying to the entire school and saying that they did sleep together and that she was the worst lay he's ever had. Because of said douchebaggery. And then he gaslights her and basically treats her like she's some sort of obsessive creep that he doesn't want to have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, she's mad, but this also draws her closer to her companionship with the three witches. Mm -hmm. It should be said that all of these witches have some sort of burden something that makes them societally outcast mm -hmm. we already mentioned sarah has perhaps suicidal tendencies or at least has cut her wrist and and caused some sort of panic in her household and with her family some rift there yep nancy is white trash as the movie says she is broke and poor lives in a trailer with her mother and an abusive stepfather. A terribly abusive stepfather. Right. Who at the very least is verbally abusive and physically abusive to the mother. But it's implied that he might be sexually abusive towards Nancy as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Bonnie is covered in scars that she got in some sort of mysterious accident. Mm -hmm. An automobile accident, I think they say. Like a car crash. Yep. And so she covers herself up. She hides behind her own hair. She She's in big baggy jackets. Exactly. She makes herself small at every... Every opportunity. Rochelle, they don't really say what's wrong with Rochelle, but it's implied that she is the only student of color at this high school. She absolutely is. And she receives a fair amount of bullying and shitty racist remarks from Christine Taylor's character, whose name I don't remember. Now with this union formed between the women, they decide to cast some spells together and try out their powers. They first go and meet a nice witch who runs a magic shop. She's kind of like Glenda, the good witch. Yeah. She's like a nice European witch. She is. She's got all their wares. Right. She wears flowy clothing. She's quick to point out that Sarah is not like other girls. She's a natural witch. And that Be natural. her mother was probably a witch as well. And she gets some of her power from her. And she also doesn't shoplift from the store, which makes her distinct from the other girls. Yep. Uh, by any means, they go out into the woods and perform some ritual ceremonies and decide to call on this spirit that they believe is all-powerful called Manon. Manon. Each of the girls casts a specific spell and asks for a very specific thing. Mm -hmm. Bonnie asks for beauty, for her scars to be healed. Rochelle asks for Christine Taylor to get what's coming to her for being a racist piece of shit. Yep. Sarah asks for Chris to love her. Nancy is operating on a slightly different plane than the other girls here. Mm -hmm. She asks for just straight up power from Menon. Fast forward to some time later in the future, and it appears that all of the spells were successful. 
Bonnie has her scars healed, miraculously. Rochelle's bully, Christine Taylor, begins losing all of her hair during swim practice. I just want to point out that Christine Taylor is also famously bald in a Friends episode (laughs) where um, it's post the we were on a break debacle between Ross and Rachel. Right. And the whole crew goes to like a beach house and Christine Taylor plays Phoebe's bald friend. And Rachel concedes to having her come along because she's expecting Christine Taylor's character to be bald. To still have no hair whatsoever. She's grown all of her hair back and Uh she's gorgeous. And she's there like kind of with Ross. And Rachel is wanting Ross back to a certain degree. And so she convinces Christine Taylor's character to shave her head again because she (laughs) felt like that was a really good look on her. And so she she's bald. She ends up bald in that episode. She is always the victim of someone strong-arming her into baldness. Into whether, baldness, yep. <laughs> whether through magic or through coercion. Or through just persuasive conversation. Right. Chris falls madly in love with Sarah. And he begins to embarrass himself and fawn all over her and carry her books and sit with her during mass. All of these kind of cucked high school thing that makes him the butt of jokes for all of his other friends. But he can't help himself. He's just so enamored. And then for a moment, it seems like Nancy's spell doesn't work. But then we follow her home and she is able somehow to summon the powers to start a fire in the kitchen and cause a heart attack on behalf of her stepfather, Mm -hmm. which kills him. He did. He is dead. (laughs) At this point, it's revealed that this piece of shit, do-nothing, abusive, drunk, trailer trash dude has some sort of like fatty six-figure life insurance policy. He had a good union job. Right. Man, that's what he did. Teamsters Local 211 took good (laughs) care of that abusive, drunk piece of shit. really did. And uh, they pay that out to Nancy and her mom, who immediately spend all of it on mostly useless things, but also to elevate their status and their living situation to a fancy new penthouse on like the 15th floor. Big time. Yeah. And at this point, mom is decked out in all sorts of like weird faux 90s chic outfits. She's trying to be one of the girls. She's definitely in like a matching lavender pleather set. And I am convinced that Amy Poehler's character in Mean Girls as Regina George's mother is oh my gosh, yes. absolutely based off of <laughs> Nancy's mom in this in this movie because Nancy's mom is like in a similar outfit and she's like drunk and like wants to hang with the girls. Right. This is definitely like the proto Amy Poehler character from Mean Girls. It totally is. From here, it seems like the girls can't be stopped. They are on top of the world and super powerful. But along with that sense of power and authority comes a dark side and all the characters start to kind of embody traits that Sarah specifically does not find particularly attractive. She's not into it. She's not into it. Rochelle's pretty much the same, but Bonnie becomes kind of a a narcissist. She's flaunting her body. She's flirting with boys. She's... She's breaking out of her shell a little bit more than she used to. She's still choking on her own words, but she's just doing it like a bitch this time around. (laughs) (laughs) Do it the same, but bitchy. But bitchy. Was the direction to know Campbell. (laughs) And show your boobs more. And then we also realize that Nancy is becoming kind of drunk with power as well. 
They go back to see Glenda the Good Witch at the magic shop. At the magic shop, Nancy notices a book called Invocation of the Spirit, which nice European witch says, you must be very powerful to perform the spells in this book. And Nancy's like, bitch, have we met? And so they take the book and they go out to the beach and invoke the spirit of Manon. They really do. There's a bunch of swirling camera and Robin Tunney holds her hands kind of weird. (laughs) And there's a bunch of lightning strikes. And then we cut to black and then open back up and it's morning. The girls wake up on the beach and Nancy is walking on water. And Nancy is certain that she has the spirit of Manon in her and is all powerful. Nancy starts becoming very flippant with the safety of the women, feeling all powerful. She starts running red lights and almost gets them into a car accident and starts kind of getting in a fight with Sarah. Sarah thinks that they're going too far and that they need to chill out a little bit Mm -hmm. and maybe have a little bit more respect for this power than they're showing. After this argument and near car crash, Sarah goes to see Chris and he is still madly in love with her. She rebuffs him and he attacks her physically and attempts to rape her. Because of the magic. Because of the magic, because of the love spell. Mm -hmm. He cannot be stopped. Anyway, this is enough to get Sarah to run back to the girls. When Nancy finds out she's furious and decides to exact revenge, she goes to a party that she knows Chris is going to be at and takes a drunken Chris upstairs to a bedroom. She tries to convince him to have sex with her, which he denies. And then she uses a spell, which we've already seen once in the movie, to make herself look like Sarah. In his drunken stupor, Chris assumes that this is Sarah. He's super into it. He's super into it. He's excited. Just at this moment, Sarah shows up to the party and bursts in. And the real Sarah tries to stop the whole thing from happening. There's a hostile exchange and some back and forths. And in anger, Nancy uses magic to fling the doors open out to a balcony on the second floor and defenestrates Chris, casts him out the window to his death. Excellent fucking word. Thank you. I forgot about that word. Defenestration is a word that we need to use more frequently. Way more frequently. In our culture at large. After this happens, Sarah is traumatized and mortified and very sad. She decides to cast a binding spell on Nancy Mm -hmm. using a Polaroid photograph and a little bit of ribbon. Some ribbon. Some crafts. She does some crafts. She does. (laughs) Oh. She arts and crafts a binding spell of (laughs) Nancy. And demands that she no longer cause any harm to herself or others. This proves unsuccessful as the girls then turn on Sarah and start witch-harassing her. Witch-harassing Sarah. They decide they need to beat her out of the best friends gang. Now there's only one thing left to do. Beat you out of the best friends gang. They start visiting her in her dreams and scaring her and confront her in a bathroom at school. And finally, it culminates in them using their powers to convince Sarah that her father and stepmother have died in a fatal plane crash. And then that her entire home is filled with snakes and cockroaches and rats and vermin of all kinds. They all show up and they're floating about and reveal that they're doing all of this to try and convince Sarah to take her own life. When she doesn't, 
Nancy goes about the process herself and slits Sarah's wrists across the street this time Mm -hmm. with a knife. Sarah flees to her bedroom and in her final moments, as she is bleeding from her wounds, she invokes the spirit of Manon herself and does so successfully. She scares off Bonnie and Rochelle with images in a mirror of them losing their hair and, and Bonnie's scars returning and covering her face. And then she and Nancy duke it out in a battle of strength, magic, and will. Sarah is able to win out and get the upper hand and then cast another binding spell, which this time is successful. Because she's got the spirit in her. She's got the spirit in her. And this prevents Nancy from using her powers. She finally relinquishes and is defeated. The film's final moments are Bonnie and Rochelle visiting Sarah at her home. Bonnie and Rochelle are like, hey, sorry about that whole trying to make you kill yourself thing. They're very penitent. Right. Maybe we can hang out sometime just as, like, girls because we don't have our powers anymore. We assume you probably don't either. As they're leaving after this exchange when Sarah says, nah, I'm good, Sarah summons some lightning that breaks a tree branch and almost hits Bonnie and Rochelle. She then warns them and says, be careful or you might wind up like Nancy. Cut to Nancy in an asylum. She's been institutionalized and she's restrained. She tries to fight against her restraints and tries to tell the orderly who comes in that she's fine and that she's magic and that she can fly. As the orderly injects her with a sedative, which she slowly succumbs to, staring deep into the camera as we cut to black. The end. The end. Like I said, that's a lot of shit to go through. It's a lot of shit. It is a lot of and then, and then. But beyond that, I mean, the movie is very entertaining. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are several reasons why this movie is as culturally imprinted on us as it is. And part of the reason is that it is a fun movie to watch. It's a little much at times, but it's fun. One of the other reasons that this movie is so much fun to watch is because of one Faruja Balk. Girls, watch out for those weirdos. <laughs> we are the weirdos, mister. She totally carries the movie. You were right when you said she is the movie because this film would not exist or even be a thing that would be remotely memorable if she was not in it and if her performance was not what it is. I feel like one of the things that made watching it with a more critical and adult discerning eye difficult is that I just noticed so blatantly how much work she was doing. Like Mm -hmm. not in the sense that her character was tedious or that her performance felt labored, but I just felt like she was doing a different thing than everyone else in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. That was not her. And compared to like Nev Campbell, who constantly sounds like she is like... Choking on her own breath. Right, choking on her own breath. It is a thing I hate about Nev Campbell. <laughs> and it is a thing that she like so perfected in, what was it? Like Party of Five, Scream, yeah. this movie. It's always just like... And, and I it, get it. And it works in certain movies like Scream where she's supposed to be this like injured 
doe-eyed, like shy, introverted girl. Well, she is supposed to be that in this movie too, which is why, which is why she's she really leans into that I'm choking on my own breath thing in the beginning because she is very insecure. She is literally cloaking herself in her hair and in her big clothing mm-hmm. and because she wants to hide from the world. Right. So it makes sense, but it's like too fucking obtuse and just makes for a really noxious experience with her character, who otherwise is a character that I would actually be really endeared to. Totally. And like have a lot of strong feelings for. Instead, I'm just distracted by her line delivery and by like how like in her nose she is. And I also think that when she comes out of her shell later after these scars on her back Mm -hmm. being removed and she's wearing t-shirts and like tank tops. Showing off her skin and flirting with boys. And and just like throwing her rack around. She's supposed to be, as we understand it, she's supposed to like lean a little bit too hard and that she becomes this like dark sort of acidic person. Right. She's kind of narcissistic. Like it's like, it's the sort of hubris and, and downfall of her release and and freedom. But I also found, like, she didn't do that with full-throated Nev Campbell, I'm like a new person. She still delivered all of her lines as if she was suffocating on her own breath. And I was like, can you just not? Like, you're not convincing me that you are now confident and, like, being a dick. You're just also annoying and now you're mean about it. Right, and that's my point, is, like, Nev is the same when she is supposed to be this sort of like, you know, shy, introverted girl, afraid of her own body, as she is when she's supposed to be this like very flippant, sexualized, almost like caustic kind of person. Whereas Faruja, I feel like her portrayal of Nancy just ratchets up. You can see the threads of kind of who Nancy is and why she's a little bit abrasive mm-hmm. and and dark. Even in the very beginning when we don't quite know that she's an enemy. But all of that is there. She lays the groundwork and and kind of gives us some hints at that. So that when things escalate, it still feels like that character doesn't feel like she's all of a sudden this different person. Or it feels like what's happening is what we're meant to believe. Which is that it's brought out this darkness in her that's always been there. Well, and she like imbues Nancy with such pathos and we're and she's so sympathetic right she is like you said like they do so much work on the front end of this movie to make sure that you understand what her experience and predicament is and why she is a person capable of anger and capable of abusing her powers for violence right and in in a way that causes harm i really liked the way feruja handles the admission to sarah that she has this troubled sexual past with Skeet Ulrich's character, Chris. Mm -hmm. They don't spend a ton of time on it. She just sort of says like, yeah, he did that to me too, referring to the rumor that he spreads that Sarah's the worst lay that he's ever had. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, hints at something deeper and more painful that took place between the two of them. You fill in the blanks yourself a little bit, or at least I did, when you know the type of guy that Chris is. Whether or not he's under some love spell, like he is capable of 
raping a woman. And right. he's also capable of using a woman to further his own reputation and tossing her aside when he doesn't need her anymore and treating her badly in public, right? He does all of those things unspelled and also under a spell. Mm -hmm. And so when Faruja has this moment connecting with Sarah about this shared anger that they both may feel towards similar experiences they had with this character, Chris, there's a darkness that you imply that takes place. She just navigates it really deftly and does so much with everything that isn't said. And I don't think that that's to the writer's credit, I think that's to Faruja's credit. Absolutely. She apparently went majorly method on this. And I don't know how much of it was just, you know, in pursuit of perfecting the role and how much of it was the film itself and the script and the, and the character spoke to what was already kind of there mm -hmm. in her. But it, it was interesting to find out that Faruja actually did become a Wicca while filming this movie. That does not surprise me. And after the success of this film and like she got her check cut, she bought the like witchcraft store that she would frequent to buy all of her materials that she would use to practice and do her like spells and divinations while she was preparing for the role. Wow. And I think she still owns it. Good fact. for her. So I love she's that. she's like hardcore into this. Like she like Faruja is a real witch. Yep. Which is awesome. It is so awesome. And very like just on brand for It for totally her. tracks for Faruja. Yeah. I feel like the if we're getting into feminist readings of this movie, Faruja is really important in that conversation totally. because she represents a certain kind of feminism that I think how how to navigate this <laughs> Um, without pissing a bunch of people off. I can say it more bluntly than you if you want me to. Go for it. Okay. I think that this movie is afraid of women. Yes. I think that Fleming and Peter Filardi, the two screenwriters and the director, are actually afraid of a particular cut and brand of feminism that riots against certain patriarchal expectations of women. They absolutely are. Faruja's character, Nancy, represents a certain type of feminism that isn't as palatable even in a post-Me Too world. Mm -hmm. Feminism, like any other ideological and activist space, is a spectrum, right? There are many different schools of thought and many different cohorts that exist within feminist theory and feminist ideology. There have been conversations about the role of violence and women being violent as a type of feminism mm -hmm. and a type of anti-establishment, anti-patriarchy, like actively acting against the system and outside of the system yep. through violence. And there are mixed feelings about that. There are certain schools of feminism that believe that violence should not be met with violence and or that that's not what feminism is actually about, right? right. That it is about a liberation and an empowerment that doesn't come through the means of the oppressor, to use a very coined phrase that shows up in a lot of different discourses. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I fully agree with that, and we don't need to get into my personal feminist beliefs here, but what I think is important about this movie specifically, and what I think is important about 
Ferruja's character, Nancy, is that she represents that faction of feminism that absolutely believes you need to fight fire with fire. Yep. And that not only are you fighting with fire with fire, but in order to not operate within the system of a patriarchy, you actually have to be violent. The nature of the patriarchy itself, the very existence of it is violent. And in order to act outside of your role within that system, you have to come over the top of it through violence. And that is what Nancy's character is, for better or for worse. So here's where I can actually kind of start segueing into what I think this movie is about. Or rather, I want to take this movie from a sort of relic of 90s feminist ideology, mm -hmm. like an artifact of that, and actually relitigate it as a movie that is actually about the tragedy of capitalist feminism destroying anti-capitalist Marxist feminism. I am so fucking here for that conversation okay. because I fully agree with you. Because so in my framing of this movie, and granted, again, I actually think that the real, uh, that this movie demonstrably kind of fails in its feminist statement because I think that the director and the writer actually were in fact creating a morality tale that is framing Nancy as sort of a thing that is cancerous to the type of power that women can exert in our society. They're putting right? limits on her power by saying that it's ultimately leading to her undoing, Correct. right? They're putting they're putting a cap on how high a woman can go, on how powerful a woman can become by resolving the story with the person who goes beyond what her cohort does. Right. By resolving that story in giving her a downfall. Well, and let's look at it. The conflict of the film really begins when the character, who mind you is in the world of the film, the most, the, the, the woman in the most socially advantageous role. Yep. Not only is she obviously like well off and taken care of and like has an easy level of like assimilation into this fundamental patriarchal conformist society. Meaning Sarah. Meaning Sarah. Mm -hmm. She's also a natural witch. Yep. She doesn't have to try and she's able to advance even on the plane of witchcraft in a way that the other girls cannot. She's basically born with a silver wand in her mouth. Very well put. And so the central conflict of the film begins at the midpoint after the invocation of the spirit when Sarah tries to confine the other women and police and dictate their behavior mm -hmm. within, the, within the patriarchal ideas of niceness, humility, whatever it is that she thinks are societally appropriate. Right. She doesn't like the fact that Bonnie is a narcissist. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like how power hungry and violent Nancy is. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe she doesn't like that Rochelle is a black woman, you know, <laughs> whatever. Sure. But by any means, when she finally wants out is when she doesn't like the way the other women are behaving. And she starts to try to demand that if they continue in their pursuits for power and on their path of becoming witches, that they do so within heavily confined and restricted means. She very literally casts a binding spell on mm -hmm. the most revolutionary, most anarchist 
witch of them all because she recognizes that Nancy is not operating within the confines of what she believes to be right and good and how the world should operate. Who's right or wrong there is beside the point. The, The fact that she is entering the world from a place of natural abilities that we can liken to her material advantages Mm -hmm. that are read in a 90s viewing and honestly in a 2020 viewing by a lot of people in this country as also natural preternatural and sort of like there's no there's no sort of constructing of how you end up in a place you're just there contrasted with nancy who is in a completely different place materially and also has a completely different worldview and set of beliefs. We are told that all of these women carry some sort of burden, have some sort of scars, right? Some of them literal. Nancy is in poverty and in an abusive household. Mm -hmm. Bonnie has physical scars that prevent her from feeling right about herself and her beauty. Rochelle is a different color than the rest of the girls. Yep. And so all of these women are in a position that has been dictated for them by circumstance. Mm-hmm. What is Sarah's societal disadvantage? She doesn't have one. Right. Well, I would say that she has just one. And it is her scars, her, her cuts on her wrist. Right. And those is are... Is that societal though? No. They are self-inflicted. So everybody else has a uh, societal burden, a burden of circumstance that they did not dictate. They mm-hmm. even say that Bonnie's scars got there because of like an accident, like yep. an auto accident, right? Yep. Which she didn't cause. Mm-hmm. But Sarah, the only real burden she carries is one that she made herself. Yeah. If we think about it as a tragedy about the the overwhelming power of capitalist feminism as a a sort of, you know, thing that can constantly overpower more counter-ideological forms of feminism. The film ends up a tragedy for that very reason. And think about the ending. Nancy, of course, is institutionalized Mm -hmm. and put in a position of even less power than she already had societally. Yep. Bonnie and Rochelle lose any capacity to uh, extend their power or advance themselves. And the only person who has gotten any sort of material or physical or societal advantage is the person who was already set up the best in the first place. Mm -hmm. And this, so I think, is not just about, you know, this kind of anti-capitalist feminist message, but is also sort of a referendum and a rebuttal of, like, culture war and identity politics, right? Which is, like, the advancement of... A particular woman or a particular representative of a marginalized group means success. Mm -hmm. But it's only symbolic, right? Because the other women actually suffer at the end of this movie. Yep. And Sarah doesn't. And if you're you're successful within the confines of a system that's already oppressive, like, is that successful, right? Right. And that's the discourse that comes up in a lot of conversations about feminism, particularly around this idea of feminism operating within the confines of a capitalist system, which is inherently patriarchal, Mm -hmm. which is inherently one that operates on a vast amount of inequity across many different spheres and spaces. So what does a feminism that operates within those limitations truly achieve? Right. Well, and the craft gives us an answer. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Where 
the only person who is better off and has achieved any level of advantage is Sarah. But she has done so because of her willingness to remain within the structure societally and not use her powers in any way that advances her or the people around her. Mm -hmm. She is actually rewarded for keeping her powers at bay. Yep. And for, quote unquote, respecting or fearing the powers enough not to use them. So when you look at Clinton era politics of the time and a platform that ran on the literal statement, you can only earn what you learn. The societal narrative and the narrative that drove politics at the time was one that ascribed the higher levels and highest levels of education and learnedness to finger quote natural and inherent abilities within a person. Right. Talent. Where if you just work hard enough, right? If you have it in you, you can achieve these things and did not at all acknowledge material and structural circumstances that actually meant and still means that there are people who will never have the opportunity to achieve the levels of success that we are told is achievable to everyone because they do not have the advantages that other people do that do not exist within them, exist solely outside of them. Absolutely. It's part of neoliberal ideology, right? It like, absolutely All the way is. back to like the Thatcherite uh, phrasing of like, there is no society, mm -hmm. right? This idea that neoliberalism at large, and especially like in the Clinton administration, uh, how it emphasized the meritocracy like you're talking about and claimed an even playing field for everybody. And we see that reflected in the world building of the movie. Supposedly, Nancy, Rochelle, Bonnie, and Sarah all have equal footing. They all have a natural capacity or, or a learned capacity to change their circumstances using witchcraft and magic. Mm -hmm. But the only person who really triumphs and ends up on top is the person who is more naturally gifted mm -hmm. and also the person who learns how to utilize that gift in the most conformist means. Totally. And we see very clearly that they are not on equal footing if we just start to pick apart the actual details of the movie, which is that Nancy is termed by the movie as, as white trash, right? Mm -hmm. She is extremely poor. She... Um, has been abused presumably her whole life, has had some abandoned level of abandonment by a real father figure. Mm -hmm. She is materially and uh, structurally disadvantaged in a way that Sarah's character is not. And so there is there is no equal footing there. Right. And that's dispelling the myth of, well, it's just about how hard you work in school. And that's a message that I grew up believing. Absolutely. But I didn't pay attention to the fact that I grew up in neighborhoods where I had really good schools because the property taxes were allowing us to have all of the resources that we needed. Yep. I was part of a gifted and talented educational program, maybe because of some level of you know intellect, but also because I had all of my other needs taken care of. I had parents who supported me, helped me with my homework when I needed it, gave me food and water and shelter and clothing and toys and time and all of the things that I needed to be finger quotes gifted. Mm -hmm. I had without strife, without stress. 
I wasn't privy to any strain on their part. And I think they hid a lot of that from me. But the fact of the matter is, is that I had, I had advantages that other kids who were bused into the schools that I went to from other neighborhoods didn't have. And just taking them to the same school didn't mean that we were on equal footing. If you take a closer look at this idea that I really like that you brought up of a Marxist feminism mm -hmm. versus a capitalist feminism. Right. One that focuses on the structural shortcomings that permit the patriarchal society to thrive as opposed to the individual mandates on particular pillars of that society. And it's quite literal in the form of Nancy. If we actually take a look at what a lot of Marxist thought revolves around, it is this idea of revolution and violent revolution, mm -hmm. um, seizing the means of production quite literally through violence right? and through, um, you know, not acquiescing to the larger structures at work. And so Nancy really is this embodiment of a revolutionary, an anti-establishment feminism. And Sarah is the perfect embodiment of a very much in establishment working within the confines right. of capitalism and a certain level of acceptance of inequity, right? Right. That is her feminism. Absolutely. And when I say that it's sort of a rebuttal and a referendum on like the shortcomings of culture war and identity politics within like a material plane of, of changing systems, what I mean when I say that is the way that you see that Bonnie and Rochelle specifically become mechanisms for that kind of like identity politics focal point where the mandate becomes on the individual oppressive forces as opposed to larger structural ones. Yep. Rochelle's spell that makes Christine Taylor lose her hair does not affect racism. Bonnie's uh, loss of her scars and newfound confidence does not change a patriarchal standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. Sarah wanting Chris to love her and making that happen does not change the fact that he still doesn't respect women enough not to attack, rape, and and brutalize women and when he wants them. And still exercises violence against her. Absolutely. So none of these people are actually achieving anything that would structurally like make their world and make the things that they are actually working towards and, and targeting any better without... And I, like I said, I can't remember Christine Taylor's like character's name now, but without Susie, we'll call her. Sure. But without a Susie, there will be another Susie for Rochelle. Yep. And without her scars, there will be another thing that Bonnie eventually finds unattractive about herself. Absolutely. And without Chris, with Chris dead, there will still be another man that will attack Sarah. We already know that. She gets attacked like twice in this movie. Yep. Three times by like a homeless man who gets hit by the car. And then by Chris and, and just all over the place, right? So like they're not, their focal points are very terrestrial and they're very individual. Well, and that's what I was going to say is it operates on the plane of this myth of individualism that we so laud and, and lionize in this country. But an individualistic understanding of the world leaves no room, quite purposefully so, for an understanding of collective structural implications, right. right? Of how I, as an individual, have a certain level of specificity to my existence, yes, and to my personality. But I also have a lot of things about my life that have nothing to do with me right. and everything to do with the larger systems that are at work. 
it's one of the things that I think is so, makes it so hard for people to understand a more leftist perspective of America specifically, but also of just like the imperial nature of our world at large. Right. That we have been trained into this narrowed view of an individual being the thing that has the most effect in any capacity. I have, I have the ability to affect my own life. I have the ability to affect climate change by using a recyclable fucking straw. Mm-hmm. I have the ability to, you know, end racism by being a nice person. Right. right? And buying certain books. And buying certain books. But it completely misses and purposefully by design blocks out the view and the understanding, the very real understanding that there are larger structural forces and machinations at work that affect not only my individual existence, but also my ability to do anything about any other facet of my existence or of other people's existence. I alone cannot change a white supremacist capitalist system. Totally. In order for that thing to change, first must come my awareness and my curiosity about it. Yes, that is operating on the individual level. But in order for change to happen structurally, it has to go beyond the individual and it has to operate on the collective plane. And Americans have this ethos of individualism stitched into our very origin story. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know and understand a world that isn't built on the individual. All of this to say, the craft also operates on that same plane. Absolutely. And when you start to pick it apart and actually look at the ways that certain characters don't, right? That certain characters do try to operate outside an individualistic, outside a moral and cultural plane and are operating on a more collective, structural and material plane. And the ways in which this movie punishes those people, to your point, mm-hmm. It all starts to make sense right. in a way that goes goes far beyond what I think. <laughs> so some people, good old Andrew or whatever his name is, <laughs> that what intended would he intended for the movie. <laughs> well, and it's funny too because I realized that it's not just you know there, there's a certain level of conditioning in terms of our narratives that makes certain things feel satisfying and other things feel apprehend that makes us you know feel yeah more apprehensive about when we see. Nancy kind of leaning into these more radical, more violent means of changing her circumstance and like of you agency, know, right? And of agency, mm-hmm. we react strongly and think like that's bad. Also, likewise, we react with a certain level of satisfaction when we see certain people get their comeuppance. Yep. This to me is like a perfect metaphor for cancel culture. Yep. In that. Susie, we'll call her again, Christine Taylor's character, when she starts losing her hair, Mm -hmm. we are satisfied because she is a bitch. Mm -hmm. And much like, you know, the dog pile that gets people like kicked out of their jobs or out of their relationships or banned from like social media or or whatever, you know, harassed in some way when they have a wrong opinion or react in a way that is like culturally reprehensible, there is a certain level of satisfaction that we receive. But much like Christine Taylor's character... The people who are victims of that kind of cancel culture and who get the, you know, the brunt of that abuse because of holding a certain idea or acting in a certain way, 
say the same thing, which is, I don't understand why this is happening. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually learn. And it doesn't actually change the fundamental structures of the system that caused the oppression and caused the ideology in the first place. Right. Canceling an individual doesn't change the structural racism that exists in America. Right. But it does feel good. But it does feel good. It feels good to feel right. Yep. And it's the same thing that we get from this movie. And you realize just like how hardwired we are to respond in a way where like we get the dopamine and we get the endorphin boost from seeing those things happen in the same way that we kind of like uh, revile at the alternative, the violence, the revolution, the, the the chaos and like cacophony of like, you know, disorder that gets sown from what is, you know, metaphorically this like kind of violent revolution and overthrow of structures. Well, it's the capitalist view of morality. There is a certain view of morality that capitalism espouses that is believed to be an objective truth. I would argue that there are multitudinous ways of looking at what is moral, right? Like, is it moral that one in four families in America goes hungry? I don't think so. But like, I need to be nice to X person because that's the good thing to do. That's the higher ground. Mm -hmm. When you look at this movie as a text of its time, I think it's really telling that the things that stood out to me about the movie were not the things that we were talking about, per se. I very much, even in my later years, beyond my 10-year-old viewing, still operated on that moral plane of like, who's good and who's bad? Right. And some people be in, being inherently evil and other people being inherently good and not paying attention to the fact that like, like when I was watching it this last time, I was like, oh yeah, no wonder Nancy's fucking pissed. She's beaten on, sexually abused. She doesn't have enough food in her house. She lives in a fucking trailer. Yeah. Her her surroundings are rotting around her. And to top it all off, here is this new, pretty, smart, rich girl who threatens to take away the one modicum of, of uh, security and stability I have in my life and become the de facto leader of this thing that I have built to take credit for it. And I certainly remember thinking that like, Faruja Balk was that her character was the baddie in this in this movie, but there's definitely a more nuanced understanding of it, and I really I really like the argument that you put forth here because it it resonates with me a lot and definitely feels relevant for a 2020 conversation around not just identity politics but this idea of what a higher ground a moral higher ground gets you. Does it end up changing the material circumstances for? the people who are in the greatest need, more often than not, no. Yeah. Because you're st even a moral higher ground is still operating within the confines and the very real structural implications of a capitalist system. It's why there have been conversations about a certain kind of revolution only happening through violent means because doing the thing that your oppressor wants you to do isn't going to get you anywhere and operating on their terms isn't going to advance you know your needs any further and that's precisely nancy's motivation she absolutely operates outside the confines of what others expect from her right. and what society demands of her because that's the only way she can get her needs met right and what she seeks is quite literally, power, which is the thing that is talked about in terms of politics as it pertains to more materialist uh, pursuits mm -hmm. and things that operate on the more cultural 
plane of sort of like neoliberalism, right? Which is you can play by the rules and we can talk about civility and having the moral high ground, or we can actually have power. And sometimes the two things will not meet. Those things can't meet when you're operating within a system where the people who need more power are not the ones who are ever going to get it. And not the ones who, di- who are dictating how that power is achieved. The people who are in power are not going to give you what you need to take some of their power away. Right, exactly. They don't give you the tools for it. And this movie, by the end of it, becomes a tragedy because of the ways in which it ends up resulting in a level of conformity without any sort of advantage for the people who were powerless to begin with. Even in the aesthetic, the girls change the way that they dress Mm -hmm. at the end. Yep. No surprise either that like part of their nonconformity and part of their like level and, and display of rebellion comes in the form of their aesthetic in like a Catholic school uniform, which is something I want to talk about because I think it's a good point to jump into the enduring legacy of this movie. Well, for people my age, especially people who are sartorially invested, shall we say. (laughs) Right. The fashion of this movie is one of the things that does make it endure. And it's one of the reasons that you find it talked about as a relevant text worth any sort of consideration. I mean... In places like Refinery29 and Vulture and Vogue. (laughs) And like it runs the gamut of media outlets. And a lot of the reasons that it still sticks is because... For a long time, this movie was continued to be talked about, continued to be talked about even after its run in theaters because of the fashion, Mm -hmm. because of the aesthetic that the movie designs and elevates. Even people of like the most basic sartorial instincts like myself, like I wear usually nothing more than like a pair of boots, some jeans and like in Oxford. And watching this movie, I was like, the entire aesthetic of this movie and everything that all four of these girls are wearing is fucking awesome. Like it totally. all looks good. And because it's like, you know, fashion being as cyclical as it is, it's like girls dress this way already. Like or dress this way now even, you know? Yeah. Like- For the last handful of years, <laughs> you know, fashion has revisited the nineties with full embrace and all of the things that I remember wearing uh, when I was younger in the 90s have come back in some form or another, either quite explicitly or in some, you know, reduxed version. Watching this movie, I remember Catholic cross velvet choker necklaces. Like, I remember <laughs> wearing those yeah. with, like, white pirate shirts like Jerry Seinfeld wears in that one episode. Right. <laughs> I remember wearing the plaid pleated mini skirts with the high knee socks and the chunky boots like those are all things that yes have come back into fashion quite literally now but are also just like those feel good like if we're talking about dopamine rushes like seeing all those outfits I was like yes take me back to 1996 when all of these things were just the way that it was yeah the fashion is enduring though I think not just because oh, we are all fucking obsessed with 90s things, but because the aesthetic of this movie is really purposeful and really, really beautifully handled. Mm -hmm. Can we say unequivocally that Faruja's style is the best of all four? Hands down. That fucking Matrix patent leather black coat that she wears. I was going to say, like, there's that specific outfit where she's in that jacket with, like, the kind of, like, round, like, circle-rimmed, like, red glasses where I was, like... 
the Wachowskis modeled a lot of the Matrix costuming off of just like Ferruja in this movie. Yeah, she has a set of like Trinity patent leather pants later in the movie as well. And she's actually wearing like old Victorian style lace up boots that in a lot of like popular witch iconography, witches are wearing. Yeah. Where it's the kind of like sculpted heel and a pointy toe and they go, you know, just to like your mid shin. I saw those boots and was like, I fucking want those on my feet right now. (laughs) Well, like we said, she's the one who absolutely took the realm of the spirit and and witchcraft the most seriously out of all of them. This movie just reminded me how much I adore her and how how much I wish she was just more like visible in things as an actress. Yeah. But I'm sure she's living her best Wiccan life I right hope now. So. A couple more things in terms of just like how this movie endures and like how in the late 90s there was all of a sudden this kind of like uptick in witch shit. Witch shit. Well, so like... Hashtag witch shit. One of the things that gets pointed out a lot is that not two m- months after this movie hit theaters was the start of the run of Sabrina the Teenage Witch mm-hmm. starring Melissa Joan Hart. Yep. Um, two years later, we also got Practical Magic, mm-hmm. which is another great... Another great Sandra 90s movie. witch Sandra movie, mm-hmm. um, which maybe we'll watch at some point here. I'm we sure definitely we will. will. We had Charmed. Two years later in 98 began its run, which not only kind of copped the aesthetic and the idea of like, you know, kind of like a sexy young like witch coven, but also even took a song from this soundtrack, um, the Smiths cover, um, or sorry, the uh, Love Spit Loves Smiths cover Smith's cover of How Soon Is Now. Yep. Um, which is a lot of people's like first introduction to that song whenever you, know, you hear it now and people think. Of Charmed. Yeah, but it was in The Craft first. It was in The Craft first. Very notably, it was in The Craft. It's yeah. one of the songs people talked about when the movie came out. Yeah. They- I I think, too, the, the Charmed connection is interesting because I watched Charmed back in the day and... Um, and still do. It is always, for some reason, on in hotel rooms, like when I'm traveling. Okay. Maybe it has <laughs> something work. to do with magic. It might have something to do with magic. I'm never mad at it. I'm always like up early and like sitting in my hotel room eating breakfast wherever the fuck I am and will inevitably land on a Charmed episode. And I'm always 1000% here for it. Yeah. But I watched Charmed back in the day. So not only does it does it take some, you know, literal like sonic and visual cues? But I noticed in rewatching the craft this time that there are actually some magical world building cues that it takes okay. as well. Like the ritualistic stuff that they're doing? Some of the ritualistic stuff and some of the aesthetic of their artifacts of their magic, like the bottles and the pins mm. and the knives, those same things pop up in Charmed. Got it. And Charmed does a lot more in terms of like world building and, you know, fleshing out the magic because it was a a TV series. Right, and had more time to do that. Had more time to do that. But I noticed that on this watch. I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing that's in Charmed. Well, and I guess they had on the film, on on the craft, sort of a a witch, like a magic supervisor. And so a lot of the ceremonies and invocations and spells that the actresses are doing are in fact real. I think about in Fight Club, they had to change part of the script because Brad Pitt 
actually tells you how to make a sticky bomb mm. in a certain part. There's like that that line when they're yep. talking where he actually gives you like um, I think what is really just like a a page ripped out of like the anarchist cookbook. Totally. Um, and so they change it so people wouldn't make bombs. Yep. Well, this movie, like if you watch it and perform these rituals yourself, like are apparently actually like real divinations and spells. And I think it's one of the reasons that the magic is the thing that people so uh excitedly attach themselves to yeah. and and are so entertained by is because it feels very real. It doesn't feel like overhandled. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like lesser lesser witch movies would like make too much of a show of it and like kind of make it feel like theatrical or and I think that a lot of the reason that the magic is so attractive and and is so memorable is because it does feel so real and it feels like that's where a lot of the cinematography i think shines as well is in the way that they shoot those rituals yeah. scenes and and some of the close-ups on their hands or their mouths mm-hmm. you know reciting these in- incantations it's definitely the best part of the movie it absolutely is it's the most entertaining it's the most sort of like lovingly and meticulously shot um, the only other thing that I, I had of note in terms of like legacy and fascination in the 90s with witchcraft is also on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, How apparently right. it became a plot point after this, like in the latter half of the 90s, uh, that Willow got really, really into witchcraft and like became like a witch on the show. So it's everywhere. Young girls in the 90s just like just were fascinated with magic. And now it's back and baby witches are hexing the moon. Right, And we're all fucked up about it. Totally. <laughs> it could be the reason why we're in the tumultuous situation we are materially right now. Oh, boy. But if we have any, uh, you know, Nancys out there in the world, we can be certain that the witches will be on the front lines with us when the revolution comes. I think, in short... The thing that is spookiest about this movie <laughs> is the suffocating view of feminism that it purports. That it puts forward. That it puts forward right. as a means to achieve yeah. all your heart's desires. Well, like I said. That shit is spooky. The movie's a tragedy. It is. And, you know, Sarah's the villain in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I like this this relitigating to use your words well, of you. of the craft and what a what a perfect time for it I given know. that that we should be upending things like this with a a spookier outlook. Society is in a period of upheaval. The moon and the sun are sitting lower in the sky and Halloween is upon us. Watch the craft. Watch the craft, yo. Couple, we just had yeah. some serious discourse about this 1996 movie about witches. Bet you didn't think we were going to go there with the episode about the fucking craft. So good. <laughs> A couple housekeeping things just to talk about really quickly. Um, for those who are following us on social, um, that's awesome. If you're not, we're on Twitter at HitFactoryPod. Uh, we are going to be donating every dollar from our Patreon page and from our subscribers to Planned Parenthood for the month of October. Feminism! Feminism indeed. (laughs) Reproductive rights, despite what Donald Trump may say, are absolutely on the ballot in November. They are absolutely on the ballot. Um, And we want to make sure to give as much as we can to the organizations in our society that are providing 
reproductive health care to the most marginalized and the people with the least. Planned Parenthood is one of those places. And I can say that from personal experience. They're amazing. We're going to give them all of our money that we get from Patreon. If you know anyone who wants to subscribe, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Tell your friends. We're going to keep doing this. We've got more fun, spooky movies coming through spooky season and beyond. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl sweet as honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you wait for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer.